Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles and I'm the host of the Sendcast. The Sendcast concept started a few years ago as a way to help improve knowledge around special educational needs and disability. There is lots of stuff to read, but we are all very busy and don't have time to sit and read. Everyone in schools needs training and support around SEND, but the funding isn't there to achieve this. We created the Sendcast to try and help solve that problem. To help make schools more inclusive, to help teachers be teachers of SEND, and help support staff be more aware. The Sendcast is also a great way to get the same consistent message to schools and parents. Every week on the Sendcast, we have a different guest that I've invited on to talk about a different area. My guest once again is Fintan O'Regan. Fintan has been a head teacher, a lecturer for Lister University, and now works as a trainer and consultant for schools and school support systems. In this episode, we're talking about how you don't need to wait for a diagnosis to make a difference for a child with SEND. Now, the Sendcast is created and produced by us here at B Squared. Over the last 25 years, B Squared have supported schools to support students with SEND. Over the last few years, we have diversified. For years, we've focused on assessment, and this will always be our main focus. We've seen a lack of high-quality, easy-to-access training in CPD for schools around SEND. Our online CPD offering, Training for Education, started two years ago with a virtual SEND conference, but now includes a range of training courses as well as our conferences. You can find out more about our conferences and training courses, including Finton's training course, by going to the Training for Education website, www.trainingforeducation.com. And at the end of the episode, I'm going to be sharing an exclusive Sendcast discount code, so keep listening. Now, on with the podcast. In this week's show, we're discussing why there is no need to wait for a diagnosis to make a difference for children with SEND. My guest this week is Fintan O'Regan. Fintan is a trainer and consultant for schools and school support systems, including social services, health, the police, and foster carers. He has worked with a number of organisations, including Nascent, Institute of Education, Leicester University, the UK ADHD, the European ADHD Alliance. And before this, he was a head teacher of specialist schools for children with ADHD, ASD, and ODD. And I believe he does have a degree in abbreviations as well. Um, Finton is a regular here at our studios. He's recorded a number of episodes of the Sendcast already. He's a regular speaker at our virtual Send conferences and has recorded a training course for us around exclusions. Welcome back, Finton. Thank you, Dale. And uh, on the issue of abbreviations, there are quite a few out there. If I saw a book the other day, it was an A to Z of S-E-N-D. And it was about nine under A. I haven't got to the Bs yet. So as you can see, it can be quite a an interesting field we're talking about here. It is, there's lots. So getting diagnosis for a child can involve a very complex journey and take a very long time. And in the meantime, that level of need remains. And the diagnosis isn't the start or the end. It is just part of the journey that child, that family and the school are on. Yes, I mean, I think, you know, you put it very well. It's, uh, it, it is part of the journey. And there is a tendency, I think, for two things here, for what we're trying to illustrate today is that First of all, for parents in particular who battle for years and years to get a diagnosis, then they get the diagnosis and then they're somewhat disappointed that the diagnosis hasn't you know, led to instant changes. So I think that's something we have to make some parents aware about because some parents, not only will they wait for many years, they will also go to extraordinary attempts and pay a great deal of money to get a diagnosis for their child. And then, you know, somewhat they think, well, that's it. I've got this now. Everything's going to be great. Well, it's not. You know, I'm afraid it is still part of the journey. A lot of the hard work is still going to take place. As I said, it's never inspiration, any of this. It's perspiration. So I think that's one point. But I think the second one is that, you know, in that time that it takes to go through the process or in that time it takes to get an assessment, it doesn't mean that you can't make changes on behalf of a child who is different. So if a child, for example, has some traits of ASD or traits of ADHD, you can make some practical changes on behalf of that child that makes sense for him or her because that's just the right thing to do. You don't have to have a label to make some changes for someone who is different. And I think that's something we're trying to get across. So I think those are the two main points, I think, that we'd like to spend a bit more time investigating. I suppose for me, when you you look at 
that journey, what that diagnosis generally does is that's kind of a key for funding. So you, as you said, you can make lots of little changes and stuff which you can do either cheaply or free, you can do. But sometimes if a bigger support is needed, that diagnosis is a key. It's not always instant. It's still got a long journey to get that support. But the other thing a diagnosis can do is it can help that person involved. Very much so. There's no doubt that some experienced parents will know, or experienced teachers will know this child is different. They're not sure why. And you need a, you need an evaluation to sort of assess what those differences are. And obviously, whoever's doing a diagnosis will be trained in terms of the tools that they're using, the assessment process they're doing to assess that child based on his or her skills in comparison to peers of a chronological age because most of these assessments are such they're doing that they're basically looking at a range of skills based on the expected output of someone of that age you know in comparison to their peers and that's what we're looking at it's a comparison and for some families who want a better clarification about why this child is different it can be an enormous help and, and relief and not just to the family, maybe to the child themselves, to know why they're different. The issue, though, is, is that the disappointment, because you have this, it doesn't mean it will happen. But your point about getting more resources is usually the case. You know, they, that in most cases, you will get extra resources based on a diagnosis. You will be allowed to have allowances and examinations because of this diagnosis and assessment. And as you say, if, for example, it's ADHD we're talking about, then, you know, you have the option. ADHD is a neurobiological medical condition. And, you know, you therefore have the option of considering something like medication, which you would not have unless you have a diagnosis. So there are definite positives to a diagnosis. But the, the key is it doesn't mean that you can't have made some changes that make sense for a child in the interim. So a thought that's just occurred to me while we start recording, so I'm going to ask you in the podcast rather than ask you later, is autism is a spectrum. Yep, so it's a huge range. Mm. And, and I've read that, well, no, no, that there are different portrayals, how it comes across, it's, how it presents is often differently. And sometimes, is it true that sometimes that diagnosis favours that male presentation? And if you have someone with the more typical female, and I'm not only a man or female, but there's information and stuff out there, that sometimes they might not be diagnosed because they're not presenting the right traits? Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, I don't do diagnosis. So I would have to say this is just more of an observation from being a head teacher and from being a behavioural consultant over the years. I think because of the ratio of boys to girls is so much higher in both in ASD and ADHD, we actually think the ratio is, is actually in reality in society is probably three to one, but it's usually about seven, eight, nine to one in these areas. So it could be said to a certain extent that some of the assessments that were taking place were male biased. You could argue yeah. that. The subtle difference, though, is that if we take the two terms, ADHD and ASD, separately, with ADHD in particular, the reason why boys are more diagnosed than girls is because the boys are far more overt and the hyperactivity tends to be the spark and tends to get the, the recognition. Whereas, as pe many people are now aware, with girls, they tend to fall more into the ADD category where it's more the hypoactivity, it's the mental drifting. So there's a slightly different rhythm in ADHD, which is which can explain to a certain extent why the, the issue is so much more biased. I think with ASD, you know, which tends again to be more boys than girls, I think the reason why girls haven't been regarded in the same way is because we do know again that what girls will tend to do is they will tend to speak more fluently than boys will do of a certain age with these traits. So that tends to mean that because they can speak, they're not recognised as much as the boys who speak less. Yeah. And also when they're younger, we know that girls in a social setting will often try and copy other girls in order to try and learn those social nuances, whereas boys will not do that. It's not so much the tools might be more, but the, the actual the way in which boys present in settings is much more geared towards how we understand these traits to fit individuals. So therefore, that's the reason why we think the bias, the ratio is as inaccurate as it is 
because we think it is more three to one, four to one, boys to girls, rather than seven, eight, nine, ten to one, I hear is the ratio. Yeah, and I think also if you think about that early ages, if you think of, I'm being very stereotypical, but how boys and girls play differently. And I'm going to use the boys are often expected to be boisterous and very active, whereas often the girls are sitting there quite quietly and making teas. And I'm really being stereotypical. My daughters did not do lots of that. Yeah. yeah. But you, you can think of the toys and the girls are kind of expected to be quiet and they become quiet. And so it's kind of lots of things that feed into that happen. I don't know which comes first. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a it's a hard, I mean, I think we are all very much more aware about this now. We're not, you know, wearing blue and pink like, like we used to. There is some definite, you know, like societal bias towards how we perceive boys and girls to be in terms of this activities we might encourage them to do. I think it's changing, you know, again, you know, I mean, you only have to look at the sort of like in sport for example you know there's still the, the playing field is not even but I think there's a lot more girls particularly in this generation and certainly in my generation playing football rugby cricket not to say that boys shouldn't be playing netball or hockey you know those games are there for everybody but as you see you know going in my generation growing up maybe a girl playing football or rugby wasn't seen as necessarily they were called a tomboy or whatever we're not saying that anymore and you know if boys want to go off and do ballet you know now then that, that's you know billy elliott has changed all of that as well you know thankfully i mean there's a good example of a, a stereotypical situation it's a film but you know the dad wanted him to be a boxer and he wanted to be a ballet dancer and if you really want to see the power of how a parent can be appreciate their child Look at the final scene of Billy Elliot, and when you when he's coming out in that magnificence, when he jumps into the air, looking so powerful with that, you know, incredible, you know, toned and, and sort of like you know muscular body, the dad just has this look on his face of sheer, you know, uh, delight. You know, so ha you know, so this makes that point about how people. You shouldn't be, you know, putting the stereotypes. We go back to diagnosis. I think the issue what we're looking at now, though, is the fact that it is hard to get a diagnosis. Now, I suppose the re one of the reasons we're making this point is that we've become almost overly successful, I suppose you could say, in terms of recognising people who are different. I think you could argue once upon a time, you know, recognition of these things was sometimes seen by only the more severe individuals. And therefore, the system was somewhat geared towards that, that amount of people. With now so much more awareness of neurodiversity or so much more awareness of ASD or so much more awareness of ADHD, that's a really good thing overall. But obviously, that greater awareness has meant there's been a greater drive, if you like, or a greater need for more diagnosis. And, and that's just not going to it's not it's not going to keep pace with the need. So therefore, there's going to be there's going to be a bottleneck there. Yeah. And what that means is certain people who are more mild to moderate are going to be trapped, if you like, in, in the queue. And while that's happening, of course, they're still losing opportunities in school and in society. And to a certain extent, that's why you don't have to wait in the school system to give someone who has these traits a visual timetable if that's what you think they need. You don't have to wait to give someone who's sitting and fiddling and needs to move a, a, a tangle tool to help them when they're in class or a workstation. So that's, the, that's my point really, that we can act. We've got to use our instincts as well as our knowledge, if you like, of how people learn best. At the same time, we want to make sure that, you know, the people who have more moderate to more extreme needs do get the resources that are available, as you rightly said, you know, once you have that piece of paper saying someone is. So with diagnosis, is it more likely that to only get a diagnosis when that ADHD or ADSD is starting to have a real impact on their life? I mean, that's how I think it should be. I think, unfortunately, it doesn't quite always work that way. If we talk about something like education healthcare plans, for example, which come usually as a result of that need, there's two elements to this. Number one is that, yes, it should be, you know, those kids who have more extreme needs who therefore need extra support, which usually a diagnosis will provide due to the system, as you've said. But to a certain extent, what happens in reality is, particularly when it comes to education healthcare plan, 
Uh, and other colleagues of mine will know a great deal more about this than, than myself in terms of what's happening in schools right now. But in my experience, it can also be the fact that you sometimes get, sometimes it's the parents who have the better drive and skills themselves who have the ability if you like to write those letters to do that lobbying to give that level of of pressure on other places to act yeah. and it's sometimes the families who themselves might have literacy issues or and have children with literacy issues who aren't able to use the system in the same way that other people can so we are saying that there is some disparity there the machine doesn't always work for those people who need it yeah. most and there's also is, and we talked about the the tests are often or the diagnoses are based on the expectation of children at that stage. Correct. So you might have a very gifted, very high functioning child who's really struggling, but they might fall within the norms in lots of areas. I think there are families struggling with that. They look at where their child could be and should be. And yeah. where they are, but they're within the normal bands. And I air quoted normal there. I mean, let's put it this way. Once upon a time, having a label such as ADHD or ASD was seen as a stigma. I don't think it's seen that way right now. And that's good. That's a good thing. Dyslexia is another reason. But certain people can only run at a certain pace. You know, we can't all run like Usain Bolt. He yeah. has a skill to run that sort of direction. Certain people can't run as fast as Usain Bolt. We are different. And nothing is going to make a person run the same speed as Usain Bolt. And some people will have gifts in other areas. You know, they might not be able to run like Usain Bolt, but they might be able to hit a tennis racket, you know, in a way that he can't do or whatever. The same when it comes to education. Some children are, are going as fast as they can go in certain areas. And there's not necessarily a reason why that's happening. Now, I think if you feel there's a real reason, then obviously that's the reason to have a diagnosis. But if you assess someone, for example, dyslexia, and they've got a reading age of, of six, they are an eight-year-old, then you think, well, that's, that's two years below. But if you've assessed them and their, their abilities, if you like, is three to six, well, they're kind of on par, if that makes sense. Now, if their ability is at 10 and they're reading at six, there's a reason why there's a gap there, isn't there? And that's when a diagnosis becomes very useful because then it, it shows there's a gap between potential and performance. But if performance and the potential are fairly on par, so to speak, that's the reading level. And we'll, we'll help it to get up. But, you know, that's my point, really. And I think sometimes people will seek a reason when there isn't a real reason other than the fact that the child is going as fast as he can go or she can go. We can always improve that. We can always nurture that. But if there's a huge gap between performance and potential, then there is a reason for that. And I suppose we, we talk about dynasty as part of the journey. For some people, they may feel that's the end if i get that diagnosis it's gonna make life easier and it's not it's it's the services on the m40 that's what a diagnosis is it's somewhere you're stopping yeah. off on that journey yeah. and yeah. if you've paid for a private diagnosis what you then might find out is that local authority won't accept it because it was a private diagnosis and getting the diagnosis and getting the support is another challenge on that journey yeah it is and as i said before it can make things easier you know you you do get to a certain extent the way that the machine is organized that you are more likely to get more services or resources for that if you're doing examinations you know if you have a diagnosis you will often or assessment you will often get extra time you will get writer or a scribe you could get you know a private room in which to work um, if it's in a school system you might get some teaching assistant support you might get some one-to-one -one support so those are all really useful the one thing to say about diagnosis though and i think this is something that is is important to say it is not the whole picture it is only a photograph of the child on that day and any diagnosis my point is it's only as good as the people who do it the amount of time they spend and the tools that they use and i mean i for example with adhd the school i was involved with our assessment for this took six hours over two days I want to see the child twice to see the, you know, a place that was different the first day was novel they might not react in a certain place as they will the next day we did a lot of stuff we did the family history the child history we did a number of assessment tools we basically were very comprehensive in terms of we were eliminating a lot of reasons why he or she was not reacting in a in a traditional manner some diagnosis for adhd are half an hour and it's a one-to-one -one with a pediatrician or a child psychiatrist and 
that can't be very comprehensive. That is not doing a lot, lot of background work on, on what the issue is. And like I said before, you know, it, it, any diagnosis is only a photograph on the child that day. And sometimes the photograph is a good likeness of us. You know, you see a photograph, it looks like you. But sometimes they always say, if you look like the picture in your passport, you're probably too ill to travel. It's not a good likeness at all because it's actually only been a very bad snapshot that makes sense it hasn't had enough time it hasn't had enough depth in the actual tools or the time that was taken to give you that so i want to make that point just because someone says someone has adhd or asd it doesn't mean they necessarily do it's only going to be as valid as the time the expertise uh, and the tools that the person used did if I'm really honest here, and I am a little bit on a soapbox here, particularly in an area that there needs to be some degree of regulation on assessments and diagnosis for certain conditions or traits. You know, so therefore you can basically say this is a pretty good explanation of him or her. And it's interesting, you hear lots of stories when a parent didn't receive a diagnosis that they, they were expecting. And then they tell you about, well, they did this and he's always perfect in that situation. But when this happens and you you sit there and go, why was that not research? And so it might be that these are these short term, quick one on one things rather than looking at them in different situations and doing that full research. I, I mean, I can tell you that there are, you know, in all walks of life, there are builders out there and there are cowboy builders out there and and you know and you know that the risk that you have if you are you know doing an extension from a a qualified someone who is you know who has some degree of certification on what they've done before it's going to be a much more solid than then you have someone who is a bit more flimsy it comes in offers you a much quicker a much a much uh, you know much lower price and everything else I'm afraid it's a bit like that. You know, there's a lot of online tools out there at the moment. There's a lot of people saying that you can do this in a half an hour on a, on a, you know, on a check sheet. It, it's like I said before, uh, if it's for ADHD in particular, you should be having a, a full family history. You should be filling out a number of assessment forms. You should be talking to the school. There should be, for example, for ADHD, you have to exhibit six out of nine symptoms in two or more places to be maladaptive and inconsistent with developmental level. So it's got to be done in two or more places. And I hear often, you know, people saying, oh, we've got a diagnosis of this. Oh, we didn't talk to the school. Or the school was saying, they didn't come and talk to us. I'm afraid this says two or more places. I mean, that, that could be the other place is not school. It could be the, with the grandparents the majority of the time. But the, you know, the places that children tend to spend most time on are home and in school. You know, they might not be in school, but that's what it says. And that's what we're really saying. So, you know, I think for parents in particular, they really do need to research and see um, who's doing a diagnosis and the tools they're using, the time they're taking and the quality and the accuracy of the actual procedure itself. And I think the question, so um, from personal experience with my sister, she was asked, well, what issues have there been recently? And the school answered, well, none, which sounds like there's nothing wrong. But they didn't mention is all the adaptions they'd put in place to remove them. And I think, you know, I mean, there is some anomalies in this as well. You know, certain individuals, for example, and this is where I do feel for some parents, because even though it does say two or more places, if you get, for example, for both ASD or for ADHD, if you get the conditions right, and maybe the school has adapted because the school has reacted in a way that they've actually done what we said, they don't have to wait for it, they put those things into place, then the child is getting the services that they actually need. So therefore, they will not illustrate those behaviours there. And then you have the parents say, well, yeah, but at home, he's like this, and he's like that in school. So I do feel that situation. So therefore, that ought to be put into the equation. So there has to be some flexibility in this. But that is goes then down again to the time taken by whoever's doing the diagnosis to put that into the process. If that's not done, then, you know, the parent is going to fall between two stools, I imagine, and we're not getting the whole picture. And I also want to say something about there is, and I will say that there is a slight bias as well towards who's doing the diagnosis, what it is they want to find. And that shouldn't be the case. 
But I will say, tell you that I have, as a head teacher, in I have had students that have come into me uh, who are maybe 15 or 16. And, you know, I look at their back reports and one says dyspraxia, one says bipolar disorder, one says ADHD, one says... So you think, well, who who am I reading here? You know, and, and as we know, the, the, the reason for that is that sometimes it's not clear. Comorbidities in particular are often overlapping conditions, are the norm and not the exception. But you do sometimes get certain people who will have a slight bias in terms of what it is they want to find. That's been my experience. And and that, again, is why I say there ought to be some degree of regulation on the tools, the time, the processes that are taking place in order to give parents, teachers and the individual the right analysis or a more accurate picture, photograph, I would say, of the situation. So what happens if you go back to the school thing, if the school has made all those changes, they're really neurodiverse or where they've done it all and that's great and that's the primary school, then that child goes up to secondary school mm. where those things aren't in place because that school just did it. They're re- and that's where I think a lot of, when that transition from primary to secondary, that's where a lot of things fall apart because things can be, that teacher makes those adaptions over time, they learn that child and what works for that child, but it's not recorded, it's not added, it's not taken into the account. And then that child goes up to secondary school where none of that's in place, plus all the other challenges. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really big, I, I mean, without saying, I think the biggest jump you ever make is from primary to secondary. You know, I think any other jump you make in the educational system is, you know, if you go school to college is a jump in terms of living independently and all that sort of stuff, if you go in that direction. But that jump from primary to secondary is an enormous jump. Now, we're not going to say you don't put those things in primary because hopefully if a child is two or three years, let's say, developmentally behind his peers when it comes to socialisation skills or reading and writing, you obviously want to you want to improve that gap so he has a opportunity in secondary school to be more on par with, with his peers. But, you know, like in everything, you know, the secondary school setup will be very different and, you know, it will take more time for individuals who who like a more one-to-one type situation to adapt to that. And I think, I mean, this is all about, it's always communication, Dale, you know, and and I think schools, a lot of schools are, you know, will be communicating pretty well on this. But um, you, you are right. The jump from primary to secondary for some kids with SEN is, is very, very, very big. And, you know, we obviously need to do as much as we can to bridge that gap and to, to sort of help that process work more smoothly. So... We talk about the diagnosis and you've mentioned about supporting that child before they get that diagnosis. So we've mentioned visual timetable. What's, what's the sort of other stuff they can yeah, do? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important for us to be talking so much more these days about traits than labels. So if you had someone who had autistic features, we know they tend to be quite black and white. They don't do the grey. They don't like a lot of change. They're not that flexible so for example if you had someone who you knew and the most important thing for a child with ASD is we know the most important thing is reduce the anxiety I'm going to say that again you reduce the anxiety so if for example you know the timetable is going to change you can't just say right Mrs such such coming over taking over today that might throw them you need to have at least sort of some bridge in that gap and need to let you know maybe you need to have a chat with him or her before that things like social stories are often given to children with asd so you lay out if you go to the sports center you will be going on the bus the bus will arrive at a certain time you will then go to the changing room in the changing room you may change with the others or if you feel anxious but you may change by yourself you, and then we will be doing something for so long then we'll be leaving at it, it's just like a you know it's a, it's a we call it a social story it's just basically a, a, an outline almost a, a program of what's happening in advance if you know that that child will be anxious and will be you know about a trip out or a change in the schedule you just need to have something there for them and it's usually better done in a visual way because when you tell them it, they, they're already anxious, they're not hearing it, they're already, if you like, agitated about it. If you show them what's happening in a visual way, that tends to work for children. It won't work for all children, but it tends to work for children who have a trace. It reduces the anxiety, it's kind of a diary. Now again, you can honestly say you do not need to have a diagnosis to give someone that resource. It, it's not just, it's not as practical, it's sensible. So one of the things you do in business is change management. So if we change this, what's the implication? If, if we went to remote working, what's the implications? And there's, there's positive, there's negative, there's just different. 
And there will be stuff you haven't thought of. But when you make that decision, you, you've got to try and think, well, okay, what's going to happen? Because you could make a very costly mistake as a business, which can be very critical. So we do that lots and we're constantly assessing. And you kind of, that's what you need to do in schools. If you're going to make a change, you kind of go, right, what's the implication? And you kind of, with a diagnosis, with an EHCP or not, you kind of got to have a kind of a list of pupils to think about what's the impact for these pupils. So you can sit there and go, okay, if we do that change, it's doing things far enough ahead. Things I never thought about is structure and ASD. So often they usually they like structure, they like those timetables. And what do a lot of schools do towards the end of that Christmas term? Yeah, I mean, it's a classic case. Thanks for it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I as a head teacher, they used to call me Scrooge because I didn't ban all the parties. I didn't ban all the frivolities of the last two weeks. But I used to say to them, look, the looser this is, the more difficult it's going to be for you. And then, of course, you go on holiday and you're going to get sick because the stress of doing that. So we know that changing the schedule, we know that changing, making things loose tends to unnerve children who like structure. And we know that children with ASD, ADHD, all children like structure. Now, I'm not saying you don't have some fun, but if it's too loose, too early in the week, you will find that a very tough week. And, and I used to say, keep it as tight as you can for as long as you can, or keep it as structured as you can for as long as you can, because it will reduce the anxiety, it will reduce the stress, they'll feel happier, structure makes people feel safe and secure, you will then have a Christmas holiday without being having a cold or being ill. Because partly that was due to the fact those last two or three days were just chaotic because certain individuals couldn't cope with the looseness of it all. That's not to say that you can't have some fun, but you've really got to structure that fun. So that's a good example, Dale, to bring in. I, I learned that not from first-hand experience, but I, I visited a school a few days before Christmas where I think someone new had come and decided that last week we're just going to have fun. Yeah, yeah. And this was like the second day of it all. Mm. And the students were revolting. The teachers were revolting. Like, Can we just go back to a timetable? Because yeah. no one could cope in that school. The yeah. behaviour issues yeah. went up. Mm. Planning change. I mean, I'm a big fan of movement uh, generally. And, and yes, I would, you might say I would say that because I'm involved in this SEN world. But I think that all children sit through class and can do with some movement. Now, of course, the ones with ADHD are going to move. You can tell them not to, but they're going to move. So I'm just going to say that for me, when I have adapted some of the things that I have done for individuals who have more of these traits, I think that probably a lot of the other students benefited from it as well. Because I'm pretty sure a lot of those kids were sitting there, even though they were looking at me they weren't listening to me because they weren't engaged and they drifted through and I always say this you know to get through school particularly secondary school it's not about being really bright it's having two main skills number one is being organized you got to bring your things in on time when they want you to be and by the way you know when we talk about differentiation and we talk about acting on things without a diagnosis if you've got a child that's coming in every day without a pen and it's driving you mad and the rest of the class mad with you arguing with them at where the pen is then give them a pen and then take the pen back at the end of the lesson you don't need a diagnosis to do that either but if you're not organized you take and then the other thing is you 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 know a lot of kids are disguising their boredom you know and they're drifting through and you're not actually seeing them so my point is that if, if you adapt some of your lessons towards those students who are different you may well find that you're also improving the quality of the lesson for many other students as well and again, you didn't need to wait for a diagnosis to do that, to recognise that someone who needs movement, organise the movement form. Eye contact is another example. You don't need a diagnosis if someone who you know is stressed or someone whose heads are up is being distracted by people around them to let them to sort of doodle or, or to have put their face down and listening to you. I know a lot of students who listen far better to me by not looking at me and, and by forcing them to look at me what's happening is I'm opening them up to all sorts of distractions from things around them that they can't filter out. Fiddling and not looking at you are not crimes against humanity. And you might well find that you don't need a diagnosis to allow someone to work in a situation where they're not looking at you, but they're still listening to you. Because what you want them to do is to listen to you. If you want them to look at you as well, then I get it. But, you know, if it's not working, why would you force it? and you don't need a diagnosis to tell you that something that works better for you should be done before you need a reason for doing it. Yeah. So uh, 
I think if you if you go into your workplace uh, health and safety, they always sort of say you should have a break every half hour or so, don't they? You should get up, yeah. go have get a drink. Yeah. yeah, yeah. A lot of lessons in secondary schools are an hour long. They sit down for an entire hour. And, and you know, and there's certain lessons that you know, timetabling wise, and they were, and, it, and it, you know, for many, they work very well. I'm not saying you know if it's not broken, fix it. But I'm just going to say that you know, I think generally speaking, we know that most people work more productively with a break of some type and there are some classes which are more movement orientated than other classes you know we know and i think often it also depends down you know it doesn't be movement it's obviously going to be depend on the skills of the teacher to break it up whether it's movement or a, a different you know a video or a game or a story or a conversation there's lots of ways of breaking lessons up but what we're basically saying is 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 making it stimulating I think however way you look at it, it's making it stimulating and finding ways of engaging people because we know attention or posture and all those things is more limited for certain people other than others. And we're all on, we've talked about all, us all being on spectrums. But my point is, if it's not working and you've even done the most, you've done the most fantastic lesson plan the night before, if it's not working, then you have to adapt it and you should change it. And I think sometimes if there's certain individuals who are more consistently in need of change than others, obviously if it's becoming very extreme and it's very dangerous, then you need to go through the system to get the system involved. But if it's something that you think you can tweak in order to get them more engaged, then, then why wouldn't you do it? As uh, I try not to say it so many times, but what works for SEND works for all pupils. Yeah, I think it often does. You've got traditional learners who are basically working in a traditional way and you've got non-traditional learners. Now, some of those non-traditional learners will be more moderate to severe, but you will have mild ones too. And the mild ones you won't see because they're not obvious. But you may well find that if you do react to the more moderate ones in particular, in terms of you changing things, you will also sweep in some of the more mild ones as well. That's my point, really. Um, so one of the things you've written in the notes is play what is in front of you. Yeah, I, I think so. I, and it's not to say, again, that you have to rip up the playbook that you've got, you know, and if it's working well, it's working well. And I think some people say to me, they don't believe in labels. And then, but you get the feeling that that person doesn't believe in labels. They kind of do it with a, you know, with a slightly sort of a wink because they kind of know that people are different. And what they're doing is they're reacting to what's in front of them. And I completely understand that. But there are other, other people who, you know, who, who will say, well, he's doing this or who's, he's doing that. You know, he's influencing everyone else or he's stopping lesson going. Well, what you can't be doing, you know, if, for example, you're using a sanction that is working, then then fine, carry on doing it. But for certain people, I go in there and I say, well, how's it going with David? And they say, oh, we got four detentions, you know, this week. And it's on a Thursday. And you look at the record, it said he got three the week before and five before. I say, well, when you gave the fourth one this week on Thursday, do you think it's going to change anything? No. Why'd you do it? That's what we do. If you do the same thing you're going to get the same response so why would you carry on doing that and that is the point now that might be a point at which you say look i need to change some things for him i need to set up a different place where he works during part of the lesson i need to put him in a different place in the classroom i need to maybe reduce the amount of stuff he does and i think some people will do that other people will say this is not my job you do this or he needs to go into the system to get a diagnosis for when then I will do that. So I think we've made the point. If it's more severe, then you do need to have, look, you know, if, if you have a child who's going to run out in front of traffic, you know, if they're a 10 year old and run and jump over a wall or, or, or endanger himself on the lines of, you know, with the best will in the world, a sticker chart for him is not going to be enough. You know, you need to have something more concrete, more specific to help his needs. But if you've got more mild to moderate, then, you know, a short term, you know, reward type system to actually acknowledge the fact what he's done might be useful. Because a lot of children, you know, I would say traditional learners are test match players. They're playing the long game. But you've got some kids who work in your school who are 2020s. They're playing a shorter game, a different rhythm to how they learn. Well, 
you know, it's still cricket. We're still talking about cricket here, but there's different rhythm to how someone bats and bowls. And to a certain extent, you need to, you know, be able to understand those rhythms and adapt accordingly. Yeah. You, you could be that person of goes, right, this is what I've been given. I've got to get the best out of what I've got. Or you can kind of get what you're given, kind of ignore what you're given and just carry on with what you normally do. Yeah. And like- when we try to get those, we were trying to get that change to this is what you've got. You've got to, for this, and this with this group, you maybe do less of that one, but a bit more of this. Yeah. And it makes life easier because generally you're just trying to reduce issues. And if you reduce those issues and making everyone happier and more engaged, generally life makes it's much easier well, for everyone. Well, what I, I mean, my point is if I do training a lot, I go to schools and I say to people about using visual timetables or, you know, giving him a, a tangle tool or, or having a, making a, a booth where I'm wearing a headset, people say to me, oh, but he's not diagnosed. And, and I just think, well, why? <laughs> why does he have to be diagnosed for you to try something that's different? I'm not saying those things will work, but why wouldn't you try those things? And that is really the point of, of what we're saying here today. There are options out there. You might want to look at some of the strategies and solutions that are there for children that have these traits. Why wouldn't you use and try and adapt them now as opposed to wait for something official to come in to say he or she has? And I think the real nub of this is to say this, and I say this all the time when I'm training, but there is no such thing as an ADHD child or an ASD child. They are children with traits of ADHD or children with traits of ASD. It doesn't matter whether they're diagnosed or not diagnosed. They are children with and not, you know, a labeled child. Does that make sense? Because if you start, if we start thinking in that, in that way about children with, then I actually think, Dale, we will start to move towards this more, you know, what I would say is a more sensible, pragmatic and probably more cost effective approach Anyway, because you may well find that having done these things, that child does not need to go through that process because they've adapted to your new approach, so to speak, and therefore everyone wins. We do spend our lives adapting. You buy a new house, you suddenly realise that this door's lower than the earth and you bump your head. Yeah. After a few times bumping head, you duck through that door. You don't duck through any other door, but you duck through that door and you just learn that this is what I need to do in this situation. I think you would hit that sort of door, Dale, because you're rather tall. I'm only five foot seven and a half, so it's very, very few doors I will have hit over the years. But I understand what you're saying in terms of you do have to adapt your situation to towards the individuals and the, and the circumstances around yeah. you. You don't need a sign to tell you to do that. You don't need you don't need a sign to mind your head. You bump your head your first time, and you learn to mind your head. You don't need a sign to tell you mind your head. You, it helps. <laughs> it tells you you're going to need to duck in a minute. Yeah. But if it wasn't there and you bumped your head, you'd still duck. What we're saying is, is that if you kept on hitting your head, you'd probably, you'd probably, well, you'd probably be knocked out. But you know, I think what what's happened is, is that in terms of that analogy, what we're trying to do is say to people that, yeah, you can be creative in that area. I think in a long term, if you kept bumping your head all the time because you didn't see it, then you probably would need to heighten the area because that meant that you had more severe issues with ignoring the sort of like the, the, the small door but if you are able to duck your head or have someone remind you to duck your head which actually the sign would be a good idea that's a good idea you put the sign in so you duck your head then therefore everyone wins maybe when the visitors come in they hit their head but they're not living there if you just don't see the sign and you keep hitting your head then you need to heighten the door so in this context that sign is a diagnosis isn't it because that sign's telling you, do this. So if you see that sign, you adapt, but you don't need to adapt yeah. until you get the sign. Well, see, I might see that slightly differently. I might see the sign as actually a strategy to help you duck your head, you see. I, I see the sign differently to you. I see the fact that you don't see the sign and keep smashing your head as a need then for a diagnosis. That's what I see, because I see. I think if you see the sign, you do duck your head. That to me is a very practical strategy in order to get through the door. Yeah. But yeah, that's, that's it. I just, I just look at it and go, yeah, it's, it's, although it's a very different context, it is, and I think you've said this before lots of times, is repeating the same action, expecting a different outcome. 
just doesn't work. No, and I think, you know, we go back to that. I'm sorry to go back again, but if there was no sign, (laughs) then I think that's like the the attention thing. You know, you haven't given someone. If you do put the sign up, so then then it has given, that's that's a strategy to help. So so I think so. And and this is where, you know, we have another program I'm not I shouldn't be advertising other programs but you know the particular area for me that I'm I'm sort of interested in is is the issue of school exclusion and the fact that you know the biggest reason for school exclusion permit exclusion something called persistent disruptive behavior to get a a full-term exclusion 45 days 45 days of small fixed-term exclusions so you carry on if the second fixed-term exclusion doesn't get a change the third and fourth one are very unlikely to get a change. But why would you carry on doing that to a point you get to 45 days before you permanently exclude someone? It's just continuing to do the same thing and get the same response. Are you telling me, Finton, you've never like put a pizza in the oven, put it in for half an hour, burnt it, went, that's a bit odd. I'll cook the next one for half an hour. Well, it's burnt it again. I'll try a third one. Wait, why is it burning the pizza every time I put it in for half an hour? Yeah, I think it's a very, very good example. And I, I uh, although if we dwell over is that um, uh, we were talking about um, uh, supermarkets in a previous, uh, there is that brilliant one if you ever get a chance to see where the, the chap on the phone rings up the supermarket to say that uh, there was no bread on his pizza because he opened up the uh, the pizza upside down. So uh, yeah, there is always that. There is a, there's a couple of pizza stories we could talk yes. about there. So, Finton, thank you for coming on the show today. I love discussing this area because it is, it is, some people see diagnosis as a big thing, but it, in reality, it's a little blip on a very long journey. I, I think, you know, parents will battle. And I think there are some parents and, and teachers out there who will probably slightly disagree with us, you know, or may have didn't may disagree because they see a diagnosis being absolutely vital towards making a, a new start or a new change or getting those issues and I completely concur with the fact that it will offer you sometimes a different set of options than before and people may look at that child and may regard him and may regard you as a parent you know in a different way because it wasn't you it was something in the child and I think there is that point by the way we haven't made it there are some teachers too who will need a reason before they'll make a change. Yeah. That is a reason for a diagnosis, but in reality, it shouldn't be. (laughs) It shouldn't be. Yeah. They should have made those changes before as much as they can based on not extra resources or monetary resources based on what that child needs. And that is really what we're trying to say here today. With that diagnosis is you're going to get a diagnosis and maybe unlock lots of things, but you're not going to stop fighting. There's still lots of battles ahead. You're going to go to move to different schools, move to colleges, and there's always going to be adapting and changes and walking a different path and into adulthood. And even just through general life, there'll be always lots of things which will take adapting. Because on a previous podcast, we talked about going to Disney or getting stuck Mm -hmm. on M25 in traffic is Mm -hmm. there's always going to be those adaptions and you're never just going to be able to go, let's just do this. There's never just do this. If you've got someone with ADHD, you always have to take into account, well, okay, we could do, but actually that would happen. This would happen. You have to plan. And that's, what I mean by that, long, it's a very long journey. Yeah, and there's another point to make here as well. Maybe it's not the best point to finish on, but we haven't made it before, so we need to make it. You know, there are certain people who say, well, you know, a diagnosis then becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You tell someone who's got this, then that's what I do. That's how I do it. You know, and that's just me, and you have to accept me for who I am. I'm going to be like this because I've got that. It is not a self-fulfilling It just basically it's an explanation about why you or he do things. But here's the point that, like, in terms of a behaviour issue, everyone owns their behaviour. If Dale, I lean across now and hit you, and I had ADHD, it's not ADHD that's hitting you, Dale. It's Finn that's hitting Dale. You know, it's not ADHD's responsibility. It's Finn's responsibility. Finn owns what he does. ADHD didn't hit you, Dale. Finn hit you. The the hits belongs to Finn. And I think if people don't accept the fact that you are responsible for what you do, it might be an explanation about why Finn didn't make a very good decision. So what Finn would have needed was, if he felt frustrated, was an option of maybe leaving the room to deal with that frustration before. And I need to give him that. 
you know, in a, in a classroom situation, that is a reasonable adjustment to give someone if who looks who looks like he's stressed the opportunity to leave the room as opposed to say you have to sit there and, and then lash out at someone and then you've got an incident. You don't need to necessarily diagnose for that either. You're just being, you know, the sign above the door again, so to speak. And the reason for that is because if children grow up thinking that because I've got this or if parents reinforce that because I've got this, it allows me to do that. That's not going to help make them independent because if you hear a policeman on the street and you've got ADHD you will be charged yep. you will be arrested for that you are responsible for what you do and that is something that's important too so I think it's important to know that if someone has those problems with that you need to give him the opportunity of making a different decision about what he does and that's what we're trying to do is maybe help people who aren't making very good decisions make better decisions and sometimes a diagnosis can help us help them make a different decision but ultimately you know you are still a person with as opposed to and you be responsible for your actions in the future i just never knew you sitting across the table from me you that you wanted to hit me <laughs> i do now i do not glad to say in every podcast you've never hit me yet so let's, <laughs> let's keep that score <laughs> Um, so yeah, thank you for coming today. Um, you've given me lots of information to share. So we've got code of practice, supporting children with special needs and disabilities to return to school, guide to inclusion, successfully managed children ADHD, behaving in the class. So there's lots of information I'm going to be sharing from Finton in the show notes, um, along with Finton's contact details. So you'll find all of that on our website, www.thesencast.com. Thank you for listening to the show. If you haven't subscribed already, please subscribe. You'll find links to subscribe across all the different podcast platforms on our website, www.thesendcast.com. And please follow us on social media. On Twitter, we are at The Sendcast. On Facebook, we are The Sendcast. And on Instagram, we are The Sendcast. And if you listen through iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review and let us know what you think, or just tweet us as well and let you know us what you think. Um, and before we go, I would just like to, want you to check out our training for education website. You'll find a number of guests on the Sendcast, our speakers at our virtual Send conferences, or they, like Finton, have recorded their own training courses. Training for education is a great way to get CPD for all staff around SEND that is very effective and very affordable. Visit www.trainingforeducation.com for more information. And as an exclusive gift to Sendcast listeners, you can get 10% discount on the virtual Send conferences, future or past, by using the code Sendcast10. So thank you for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Sendcast. Goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Bye.